Thanks, Wellesley. Well, great to see you all here this morning, and uh, we're continuing in our little series. This is actually the last in our five-week series, um, looking at the subject of a heart for. If you've not been here for the last few weeks, this is what we've been doing. As part of our part of our vision is to encourage each other to persevere in the face of trials, and we've been thinking over the last five weeks about how, as a church family, we can have a growing heart, um, ultimately for other people, but particularly hearts that step towards people in pain step towards the struggles of each other, where we can be a real community that nurtures and looks after each other. And uh, today we've come to the last one, um, having a heart for the young. And as uh, we've already heard, um, as well as he said, this is a real responsibility for us as a whole church family. But it's actually very apt that today, following these baptisms, we think about what it means to nurture the young, because um, James and Erin are younger in faith than others here. And as we seek to nurture those in, who are physically young in the church in their faith, it's exactly the same in many ways from a spiritual point of view in terms of how we nurture those who are younger in the faith. And so I pray this morning will be um, a real encouragement to you. Now, you're probably wondering what this box is doing here. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's a very big box with the letter W on the front. Um, this represents the world. And what I need is a young person who represents young people. So I have Matthew here. Good to see you, Matthew. Um, And the deal is that young people live in the world, don't they? Not outside of the world. So we've got to get you into the world, all right? Here we go. There we go. So now we have an illustration of a young person in the world, okay? The problem with all illustrations is they break down very quickly, particularly when you use Matthew for an illustration, because he's a young person, but he's more mature than most adults in the room. But you need to be representative today of a young person, okay? Now, here's Matthew, who's a young person. He's living in the world. And I want us to try and reflect this morning on a few of the pressures that young people living in the world have to face day to day. And so I'm going to sort of throw into the box, as it were, different pressures. Here they are. Many young people will struggle with the whole issue of identity, kind of who am I? Uh, The world is full of gossip, the world is full of glossy magazines that portray a kind of image of perhaps what we want to look like or perhaps what we don't want to look like. But there's lots of pressures that young people will have to face and they're often caricatured in some of the sort of magazines that guys and girls can read as they grow up. So here's our young person in the world and he has to deal with all those sort of pressures. Then there's the, the R word, relationships. When you're at primary school, if you're a little boy and the girls want to play kiss chase with you, you run in the opposite direction. At some point, it's a bit of a transition, as you get to secondary school, suddenly the idea of a game of kiss chase, as James has already said, becomes a little bit more appealing. But young people have to negotiate relationships with all their complexity, friendships, romantic relationships, perhaps in time, marriage, and the joys and the struggle comes with that. So here's our young person in the world, and he's got to think through all those issues of relationships, and it's not easy. Then there's the issue of money. As you grow older, you have to increasingly handle money. You have to think about how you'll be responsible with money. And there's lots of pressures on young people to be irresponsible with money. Uh, The bank of dad can only carry most people so far. But actually, it's a a big issue, isn't it? As you grow older, you need to think about longer-term provision. And so money is an issue that our young person in the world has to deal with. There's all the sort of social media stuff. Facebook, Twitter... And all these sort of things. I call them twit face. All these things which can be really useful, a good way to stay in touch with each other, but again, can be a huge hindrance to young people. How many young people will spend hours a day on devices? Possibly doing good things, possibly wasting a lot of time. But this is, again, another pressure 
that a young person in the world has to deal with. I'll let you hold that one. So I'll throw that in. There's all the issues of sort of sexuality. Uh, the Youth Hostel Association has just put in their new kind of um, inclusion policy that anyone who isn't, um, isn't happy to identify as male or female is, is perfectly allowed to choose both the bedroom and the bathroom that they think both suits their sexuality. Now, in the world of sort of seeking to be inclusive, it could be said to be a good thing. But look at the, the slippery slope that that can become. And our young people have to negotiate all of this. Difficult for our young person in the world, understanding sexuality and understanding how to be God-honoring in that, living in a culture where everything's very, very confused and boundaries are increasingly becoming blurred. The A word, anxiety. James even mentioned it in his testimony. Lots of young people suffer with anxiety. Um, but Bernardo's, the children's charity, have done some recent research from 16 to 25-year-olds and the research said that one in five 16 to 25-year-olds says this, I have no value and I will not succeed in the world. It's terrible, isn't it? That this is the sort of culture that our young people are growing up in. One in five representative of these children in this church perhaps has those feelings. I'm not valued and I won't survive in the world. Another pressure that our young person in the world has to deal with. Then, of course, there's the Bible. God's word, is it an authority anymore? Increasingly, society says, no, it's outdated, it's irrelevant, it doesn't speak truth anymore, we've moved on. And so young people have to wrestle, well, is this an authority? Will I trust it? Parents who are bringing up children have to either affirm the truth of the Bible or say that there's another truth to live by. So a young person in the world has to consider authority. And all this ultimately leaves our young person in the world feeling a little bit like a goldfish, Because if he's going to live and be faithful to Jesus Christ, he's going to have to swim against the flow. James and Erin, after you've professed faith today, as you continue in your walk with Christ, you will swim against the flow because the majority of the world won't be heading in the direction you're heading in. And that will be a real challenge for you. So I hope that just paints a little bit of a picture. Here's a a representative young person living in the world and here are a whole heap of pressures that he has to deal with. Right, we need to get you out of the box now. Here we go. Well done, Matt. You can go and take a seat. Should we give Matt a round of applause? He's been, a... He's been an excellent young person. Thank you. Well, today we're just looking at that little passage that was read earlier. It's a letter that an older Christian, a guy called Paul, writes to a younger Christian, a guy called Timothy. And just notice, at the beginning of that reading, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, what in the world does that word godliness mean? It's rather bizarre. Let's just take a a step backwards. The Bible tells us that you and I, every human being that was created, was created in the image of God. That can mean all sorts of different things, but at its heart, it means this. It means you and I were not an accident. Because if you were an accident, then you have no more value than any other organism on this earth. Being made in the image of God tells you that there is a creator who created you and he created you with a unique personality of great dignity and worth to him. Being created in the image of God also means you and I were created for relationship. God is a God of relationship within who he is, Father, Son and Spirit. And he created you and me to have a relationship with him, to know him, to love him, to serve him. It's a place of great joy. 
And so here where it talks about being godly, it's saying you were created to be like God. You might think, well, that's a bit weird. You can't be like God. There's only one God. Well, there's certain attributes that God has which you and I can't share with him. He is all-knowing. I'm not all-knowing. He is all-powerful. I am far from being all-powerful. But there are other attributes of God that he does share with us. God is a God of grace, and you can know grace in your life. You can respond to grace. God is a God of mercy. You can know mercy. You can respond to mercy. God is a God of truth, and you can know truth. God is a God of relationship, and you can relate to him, you can relate to one another. Certain attributes of God that you can't share with him, certain attributes that you can. But when we read in the Bible that we're created in the image of God, part of that means that we are created to be like him in the attributes he shares with us. Godliness is about walking God's way. It's about living out what it means to be made in the image of God. And we read here that godliness, in other words, life God's way, leads to contentment and a God-given peace. Have a look at our verse. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We're growing up. Imagine our young person in our world, growing up in the 21st century, a frantic world. There's so many people who are driven by a full sense of security, driven by materialism, driven by fear and anxiety. But God says, you were created in my image and you weren't created to live with those emotions controlling you. So Paul says, godliness, to reflect who God is, to live out what it means to be created in his image, that with contentment is great gain. And he goes on to explain why. He says, verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now, don't misread that. He's not calling us to a monastic life. Go and live a life like a monk with no material pleasures. What he's saying is a statement of perspective. We don't need to busy ourselves seeking to control our future as if we really can control it. Because Paul says to Timothy, there's a God who knows you and loves you and he will protect your future if you will trust in him. John Stott, I think I mentioned him last week, the great Anglican vicar who died not too long ago, wrote this, one of his last books, The Radical Disciple, really a summary of all that he learned seeking to be faithful to Jesus Christ. And in it, he references our passage, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and just a few verses, or verse after the reading, verse 17. God gives us all good things richly to enjoy. And he makes a point in his little chapter on simplicity. Every good thing you enjoy is a gift from him, which you're firstly to steward, that means look after, and secondly to use to serve other people. That's very different to our culture, isn't it? That says, mine that says, I'm in control and I'll live my way. Notice what Paul goes on to say to Timothy, verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Why? Not because money and material things can't give pleasure, but because if I pursue these things for my ultimate sense of worth and satisfaction, they'll never satisfy. They plunge me to ruin. And then he goes on and says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
And of course, this is an illustration. So particularly Erin and James, it doesn't have to be money. Maybe that will be a challenge for you at different times in your life. It doesn't have to be money. But I want to ask you, watch out for the things that will distract you from living out the testimony that you've just professed today. The different influences that will seek to pull you back in the other direction. Because you are a fish swimming against the tide. And anybody in this room who professes faith in Jesus Christ is a fish swimming against the tide. There's the little warning that this older man gives to the younger man. But actually, what he also wants to say is not just warn... I don't just want to warn you, Timothy. He wants to say, listen, there's a better way. And I think in your testimonies, which were so unique and individual, but beautifully written, they were a testimony of the better way. Because you've testified of your old life, the way you lived, and now you've said Jesus has changed you, and you now want to live a new life. And that is a spoken testimony of a better way. And notice what the better way is, verse 11. Paul says, you man of God. He could easily have said, you woman of God. He just was writing to Timothy. So it's like Paul is saying, James, Erin, flee from all of this. Run away from everything that the world will tell you about where you find your true identity, where you find your true satisfaction and joy. Run away from that because there's a better way. Let me tell you where you'll find true satisfaction and joy. Instead, flee all this and pursue. Look at it, verse 11. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Let me just try and help us understand what those things mean. And as I look at them with us, ask yourself the question, is this a picture that's attractive to you? Paul says to Timothy, pursue righteousness. Righteousness is about that which is right in the eyes of God. And if there is a God and he created the world, he knows better than anybody which way is right. And the Bible tells us all his ways are right. And so to pursue righteousness is to pursue him and pursue what he says is right. Godliness, we've already looked at it. The idea of reflecting God in our lives, being created in his image. Faith. Faith is about having a robust trust, even when our experience and our feelings seems to cut against it, based on the character of the person we put our trust in. I don't think there's a single person in this room who does not have faith. Because every single person in this room will put their faith in something that will form their worldview and be the anchor around which they build their life. That is faith. It's not just religious people who have faith. All people have faith. The question is, who or what do you put your faith, your trust in? And here we're called to pursue faith. Not any old faith, but trust in Christ. Pursue love. Who wouldn't want to pursue love? Love is about giving to another. It's not about taking. Love is about being self-sacrificial. It's about God coming first, other people coming second, me coming third. And if the whole world lived like that, God first... Other people second, us third. Think how different the world would be. It wouldn't be selfishness. But we invert that. We turn on his head. I come first. People might come second. God a little third. Endurance. Wonderful picture of the Christian life. It's not easy. The fish swimming against the tide. James, Erin, anybody else here who wants to follow Jesus. It will not be easy. We need endurance. We need the spirit of God to help us. We need each other. To encourage us to keep going. Christian life is costly. 
Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, if anyone would follow me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Follow me through the joys of life, but follow me through the struggles of life. Follow me when you can't see the way ahead. Follow me when it's painful. We're not following Jesus if we just follow him when life's nice. We follow him when we follow him. And that's what Paul says to Timothy. And then the last one that I think is missing in so much of our culture, but it's a wonderful attribute, gentleness. This idea of loving other people, bearing with other people, being quick to forgive. What a distinctive way that we can be as individuals as a church if we're gentle with each other. You look at that little picture, man of God, James, Erin, flee from all this and instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. I doubt there's a person who would look at that little picture and go, that's not attractive. I don't want to pursue those things. And yet that's the Christian faith. It's pursuing the God who is those things. It's following Jesus Christ who is perfectly righteous. Let me ask you, is that better way attractive to you? I hope it is. And notice too, Paul goes on, and James and Aaron pay real attention to this, verse 12. Notice that everything that we're called to pursue instead of what the world pursues leads us to a fight, verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The Christian life is tough and we're called to take hold of eternal life. It's this, the, that's really a summary of the questions you were both asked in the baptism pool. Have you turned from your sin to trust Jesus for your forgiveness? And are you promising now to live with Jesus as your Lord? Because as you have made that profession, as you continue every day to make that profession, as each of us have to if we put our trust in him, that is how we fight the good fight. Not in our own strength, but looking to Christ every day. Trusting him every day. Trusting his grace every day when we mess up. Trusting his love when we feel empty, when we feel abandoned. Of course, we're presented with this challenge, aren't we? Jesus sort of picks this up. He talks about there's a wide path and there's a narrow path. And he calls us to enter through the narrow gate, to walk the narrow path. By contrast, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Lots of people enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Jesus is calling all of us to pursue life. Not just life, but life, his life. The life that he created us for, a life made in his image, because that is the place of true peace. And both Aaron and James have testified that this morning. So I want to ask you a question, and it's a really important question. When you think about God, what you think is the most important thing about you? Think about that. If I was an atheist, if I didn't believe in God and I thought about God and said he doesn't exist, that's the single most important thing about me because it defines everything. If God doesn't exist, why can't I just live for myself? There's nobody there who tells me there's a better way. But as soon as I understand who God is, it defines everything. And notice who Paul tells this young Timothy God is. Verse 15, he's the king, he's the Lord. And if Jesus Christ is King and Lord, 
There's no room for us to be king and lord anymore. The day I professed faith in Jesus Christ, I couldn't be king anymore. All the time I try to be, but I can't be because there's only one king. And James and Aaron, as you've professed faith in Jesus Christ being your lord, crucial for you in your ongoing walk with him is to remember he's king. And you both testified about this. And we need to pray that Jesus Christ will continue to be their king and their lord. But more than that, who else is God? Verse 16, he is immortal. Go back to verse 13. It tells you he's the life giver, the one who gives life to everything. Who in this room doesn't want life? Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life in abundance. Who wouldn't want that? And we read here, who is God? He's the life giver. You see, what I think of when I think about God is the most important thing about me. Does he not exist? Is he just a distant deity who's not interested in my life? Or is he Lord and King? And is he the life giver? Because my goodness, if he is, he changes everything. And hundreds of people in this room could testify to the fact he has changed everything for you. So we close, just to sort of bring together this little series that we've looked at together and having a heart for. Particularly, I want to think about what it looks like for us to have a heart for younger people. First of all, I want to encourage us as a church to continue to be a church that really values younger people, encourages younger people, walks alongside other younger people, understands the pressures that younger people live with, investing intentional time. If you're an adult here, please don't underestimate the influence you will have by your example to young people. Because they don't just listen to you when you tell them to do something, not to do something. They watch you. Let's be a church that continues to really value young people and encourage them. Young people are so important and they're such a rich blessing to us, to this church. We need to remember that. Second little thing to think about in terms of having a heart for younger people. We mustn't neglect our family. When you become a Christian, there's a sort of tension that you'll feel the rest of your life. Your biological family, hugely important to you. But also your Christian family, your spiritual family. And that is to be equally as important, if not more important in many ways. And I want to encourage you, James and Erin, when you have professed faith today, you don't leave here then in your own strength, seeking to live the Christian life on your own, but you are surrounded by us, people who love you, who will pray for you, who will encourage you, who will put an arm around you when you fail. And we do this for each other. And so we mustn't underplay the importance of being here regularly. And that massive implications for you if you're a parent in terms of bringing your children to church regularly. Because regular, week by week, sitting under the preaching of the gospel and hearing about the love that God has, that will be the most important thing for your children growing up. More important than their education at school, more important than a holiday, more important than the clothes they wear, is you putting them in the position where they can learn of the love of God. And what better place than here? To encourage, let's be a church that encourages younger people. Let's be a church that encourages each other to regularly be here. Because we can't do the Christian life alone. And then thirdly, we've, we've spoken a bit recently about membership. It's a way of committing to this church. To not just turn up on a Sunday or not turn up if I fancy it or not. But to say, I'm committed to this family. Because I recognize they are my family. And I want to be involved in the decision making in the church. I want to help set the vision of the church. I want to be a family. And that's really what membership is about. I'm not signing a bit of paper and turning up to a few meetings. It's about saying, I promise to commit to this. That's a wonderful thing. 
And so as we come to the end of this little series, having a heart for the hurting, the vulnerable, the lost, the old and the young, I hope we've seen that to be able to have a heart that steps towards other people, we have to have a heart first that is being transformed. It's the love of God that says to me when I see a need, not someone else will help, but I will help because my God has helped me and stepped towards me in my brokenness. So I pray that this little series has been something that you both enjoyed, been able to reflect on, and that together we can continue to be the family that God is building us up to be. A family that really loves each other. A family that really steps towards the hurting, the vulnerable, the lost, the old and the young. And particularly for you, Aaron and James, today, we want to encourage you. You have made the best decision of your lives to trust in Jesus. He has got hold of you and he will not ever let you go. And so you, like each of us, can pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. And that in part is what it means to be made in the image of God. Let me pray before we sing to close. Father, it's wonderful just to stop and reflect on the extraordinary love that you have for each of us. Thank you that we don't need to believe what the world believes, that we're here by accident, that we have to give our life meaning and purpose. Thank you that you are a God who gives it to us. Thank you that you love us when we feel our lives are sorted. Thank you that you equally love us when we're broken and hurting. Thank you that you love us when we're obedient to you, but you equally love us when we walk away from you. And thank you particularly today as we reflect on what it means to be a church that has a heart for young people. We thank you for every young person in this church who's a wonderful gift to us. Just for a moment of quiet for each of us, why don't we thank God for a young person in our life who means something to us. Father, teach us, help us to be a church that values young people. Help us to be a church that encourages young people. Help us to be a church that together encourages each other to fight the good fight. And we pray particularly today for Erin and for James that you would indeed help them to stay close to the Lord Jesus. Give them confidence in you. And we thank you for the great joy it has been to celebrate with them and friends and family today. Thank you for what it means to be your family here in this church. And we pray that you send us from here uh, full of your joy, the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Saviour. Amen.